Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I have read this passage at practically every graveside service that I've ever done in 20 some odd years, 25 years of ministry. Uh, so it's a very familiar passage and it is one that is meant to encourage us, especially in our times of grief. So I pray and trust that God's holy word would do the same for you this morning and renew your hope in the resurrection as we do say it at, at many graveside services. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, Elie Wiesel is known to some of you. Uh, he was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he wrote many books, uh, was a great humanitarian. Uh, he was a professor at Boston University. Uh, he was an activist for human rights, especially for those oppressed people in the world. And in 1986, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So uh, he was uh, quite uh, uh, an important person in the 20th century. But he was an agnostic and didn't know if there was a God or not. Uh, he was a humanist as well. He was uh, head of the, and, and one of the founders of the human rights organization. But I was struck by a quote of his that I read as I was thinking about this passage. He wrote, well first let me say, I, I, I was struck by this not because I thought it was a profound quote, but because I disagreed with it. And, and I want to show you how I disagree with it. And here's what he wrote. He said, Hope is like peace. It is not a gift from God. It is a gift only we can give one another. Well, that sounds all nice and sentimental, doesn't it? But you see his humanism shining through. Humanist believes that man is the measure of all things. Man is the center of everything. Man can, through his ingenuity and, and power, can produce peace and hope on his own. Uh, man can do anything if we set our minds to it. How sad and mistaken he was. He said that it's not a gift from God. Hope and peace are not gifts from God. The hope he was talking about was a false hope. See, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. Hope and peace are gifts from God. 
In fact, you cannot truly experience hope or peace or any other blessing apart from God. And that's why Paul in this passage we just read begins by saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now what follows those verses is the information, you know, the they're uninformed. He wants to give them the information they need to cope with death, particularly, and to have true hope that only God can give. It's rooted in his promises, in his work, his action. That's how we can experience hope and peace and all the other spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He tells us in verse 15 that, that it is a word from the Lord that he's sharing. This information is a word from the Lord. God tells you how you can know true hope, how you can have true encouragement. It's not just from one another that we get hope and peace. It's from the Lord. And we're getting a word from the Lord telling us that this is so. Now you remember about Paul and the Thessalonians, the history there. Paul went into Thessalonica and he was not able to stay there very long. It was a very brief visit, but in that brief time, many people responded to his preaching. They responded to the good news about Jesus, but he did not have a lot of time to, to teach them because he got ran out of town by his enemies. He had been able to teach them some things. For example, he had taught them that Jesus was returning, but in the meantime, after he had left and moved on, some of those saints at Thessalonica had died. And so as Timothy went back and visited the Thessalonians and reports back to Paul, he's relating this and relating that there's some concern among the Thessalonians about those people who have died. They were anxious about them. Would they miss out on the blessings of the second coming because they're dead? And when Jesus returns, they won't be alive to, to see Jesus returning? Are they completely lost? So Paul writes them this information that they need to be encouraged and to not grieve without, to not grieve in hopelessness. So like the Thessalonians, we need to understand the truth, the word of the Lord, so we can live with hope. And we'll look at three things today. What happens to a believer at death? What happens to a believer at the second coming? And what happens to a believer in eternity? Each of those points shrink, and the third one is very short. But I want to focus really on the first point more than anything else. What happens to a believer at death? He starts off in verse 13 saying, uh, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, it is interesting that Paul refers to those who are dead as those who are asleep. Well, it was a common metaphor for death, not just among Christians and Jews, but among pagans as well. They used this metaphor of sleep to refer to death. In fact, our word cemetery is uh, based on the Greek word that means a sleeping place. A few people know that. I, I was surprised when I read that. A sleeping place. Now some people have misunderstood this passage to mean that at death a person goes into a soul sleep. 
a suspended state of unconsciousness until Christ returns. In fact, John Calvin's first theological work that he ever wrote was about was refuting this idea of soul sleep. He wrote a whole treatise on it. So some people think that they're asleep means their soul's asleep and then it will be awakened when Christ returns. That's not the case. The reference here is to the body, not the soul. At death, the bodies of believers are buried and are metaphorically asleep, but their souls go immediately to be with the Lord. Notice verse 14. It says there, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus returns, he will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. In order for God to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, they must be in his possession. If I say to you, I'll bring you the book when I come to church uh, that, that you want, it means that I have that book in my possession and I'm going to bring it to you when I, when I arrive. And that's what it's talking about here. Their souls are in God's possession. And when he returns, body and soul will be reunited. Believers die and their bodies are normally and obviously buried in the ground. So the only way to understand this passage is that the souls of the believers go to be with the Lord, and that's what Scripture teaches in several places. For example, you'll remember the thief on the cross. Uh, He said to Jesus, the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, they took the uh, the thief on the cross and they buried him, his body, but his soul went to be with the Lord that very day. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there's a separation there. Uh, If we're going to go be with the Lord before he returns, our souls are going to go there, but our bodies are not. In Philippians 1, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live, on, live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, when we die as believers, our souls go to be with the Lord. Our bodies are buried in the ground. If you look at the front of the bulletin, I've given you there chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession that sums up the Bible's teaching on this subject very well. It says there, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, The scripture acknowledges none. So Paul's teaching here, the souls of believers uh, 
go to be with the Lord, and the wicked are cast into hell until judgment day. And the Bible does not indicate that there are any other options, like purgatory, for example. There's, there's nothing else. There's these two places. Now, this is an encouragement in grief, obviously. Our deceived loved ones, our, de- our deceased loved ones who are Christians, they are with the Lord, and they are made perfect in holiness. They are dwelling where they can see his face in light and glory, clearly, perfectly. What a blessedness they are enjoying there in heaven with the Lord. Well, that leads us to the second thing. What happens to a believer at the second coming? Paul goes on and talks about it in verse 15 and following. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So there's several stages here. First, the Lord is going to return. And we're going to talk more about this next week uh, because the the next section, beginning in chapter 5, speaks of the Lord's return. So first, the Lord, it tells us here, will return with a cry of command, a shout. Think of a a great army uh, and and the commander yelling, charge! And and, and the the armies of the Lord arrive. So Christ will return, and the dead believers, whose souls are with the Lord, who is bringing them with him when he returns, they will be reunited with their bodies. Their bodies will rise up from the grave and they will be united to their souls in perfection, glorified bodies. Then, after that, those believers who are living at the time of Christ's second coming will join them all in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What an encouragement that is. You know, Paul says here, encourage one another with these words. That used to not be an encouragement to me when I was a young person. I've said this many times to you, and and I kind of laugh. You know, when you're 15 years old and people are talking about the second coming, you think, man, I really want to get my driver's license. And I was more interested in my driver's license than than the Lord returning. Uh, Of course, then you each hit milestones. Well, I want to graduate from high school before the Lord returns. I want to go to college before the Lord returns. I want to get married before the Lord returns, et cetera, et cetera. But there should be an encouragement to us and a hope that grounds us and, and excites us that the Lord could return any moment. He could return at any moment. And we should be looking and watching and be excited about that prospect. What an encouragement to the Thessalonians who were worried that their dead believing family members and friends were lost and they would miss out because they... They had died before the Lord returned. But Paul reassures them that this is not the case. We'll all be there together. All believers from all time will join the Lord in the air. We will all be together with the Lord when he comes to usher in his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And we will have perfect, glorified bodies. No more sickness, no more sin to cause sickness, No more sadness. There will be no tears, no crying there. What a blessed day that will be. Well, we're going to look at that, as I said, next week in some more detail. But be encouraged that Jesus is alive and he is returning again. 
And whether you're alive or dead for that event, if you belong to him, you will not be forgotten. You'll be raised up. Jesus has the power to raise us up. You remember the account in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, a little girl, and uh, you had the whole episode there with the woman who touched the hem of his garment. Jairus has come to Jesus desperate. His daughter is, is on her deathbed. And, and as he's wandering, as he's going through the crowds, uh, the lady with the, you know, not a life-threatening illness touches the hem of her garment. And Jesus stops and interacts with this woman who's touched the hem of his garment. And I'm sure Jairus is sitting there beside himself going, why is he talking to this lady? You can, she can, we can meet later. You know, we can go back to, to, to that lady. This is urgent, my daughter. But it's not urgent to the Lord. Because when he goes and to Jairus' house and the people meet him and says, don't bother Jesus anymore, the little girl is dead. Well, Jesus goes anyway, and what does he say to her? He says, little girl, wake up. That's all he says. Little girl, wake up. And as easy as waking a child, Jesus brings life from death. And he can do that for all of us. As, as easy as saying, wake up, little girl, he can raise you up forever to eternal life. Now, no wonder when he returns, he comes with a cry of command. I don't think it's charged, like I said earlier. I, I think he's going to say something like, Arise, awake, and it's going to be loud so that all people from all town, uh, time over all the earth can hear that cry of command, and they will rise up and meet him in the air. I hope that encourages your heart today. Well, finally, what happens to a believer in eternity? This is a short point. The end of verse 17 so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were banished from God's presence. And through Christ, we can, we can have a, a renewal of that relationship. We, we can have fellowship with God again. But it will not be until the Lord returns in eternity that we will be with him forever with no threat of ever losing that fellowship with the Lord. We will be with him forever. I love how it says, we will always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. And that's what we were created for. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, our shorter catechism says. To enjoy him forever. We will have that blessed opportunity in eternity. So that's what happens to believers in eternity. Paul wants to give us this information and do something with it, to believe it. Because you look here, the most important part of this passage is what he says there in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All of this hinges upon the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he didn't do that, none of this was possible. We would have no hope if it wasn't for him. So that's why we say, yes, hope is a gift from God. It's a gift from the Lord. It was secured when Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and made holy so that we could have a relationship with him and so that we could be with him forever. 
1 Corinthians 15, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But we're not to be pitied. We are to, to be admired and, and we are to be envied. Not because we're so great, but because we have Jesus as Lord and Savior who has given us life eternal. Well, I hope that you know that eternal life today. Uh, I hope that you have united yourself by faith to Christ to, to go to him and give your life to him. Everyone who is bound to him in relationship, united to him by faith, as the scriptures say, everything that he did in his life, death, and resurrection is yours. He died for your sins, paid your penalty on the cross. He, he lived a perfect life on your behalf that gets credited to your account if you're united to him by faith. He, he died for your sins. He rose from the dead, and if that's... And if you're united to him by faith, you too will rise again from the dead and live forever just as he does. So if you don't know that today, call upon the Lord. Ask him to, to cleanse you of sin, to give you eternal life, to allow you to be in relationship with him. It's just a prayer away. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's all we have to do is call upon him, the giver of every good and perfect gift, especially the hope of eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful gift of salvation, of, of hope, of eternity, of peace with you, of fellowship with you, of having a relationship with you. Lord, Lord there's maybe some here today who don't know you, and who are not walking with you, we pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that you would save them and cleanse them, and, and may they know forgiveness, and may you fill them with your Holy Spirit, and may you transform their lives. Lord, we pray that they would pray that prayer, call upon you. And Lord, for us who uh, sometimes get discouraged with the difficulties of life, who may be grieving and forgotten the wonderful hope that we have in you, Lord, for those of us who are stumbling in our sin, we pray, Lord, that you would renew our hope in the resurrection and remember our identity of who we are and, and what our eternal destination is. This time on earth is a very brief time compared to that eternal blessedness. So, Lord, may we ever keep that in view and be prepared for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.